If you would, remain standing and turn in your copy of the scripture to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, which in God's providence comes right after the book Philemon, which we heard preached on today. Hebrews chapter 1, you can find this on page 1276 in your pew Bible. Our focus today, though, is going to be on verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, since that's just a four-verse text, I think, for the context. It would be good for us to read from chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 2, or chapter 2 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's give our attention once again to the reading and the hearing of the infallible and inerrant word of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke, in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed." But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do thank you for giving us your word this evening. And we ask that tonight you would give us eyes to behold, ears to hear, minds to understand the glorious things that have been spoken to us concerning you out of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those that have not necessarily been here for the series on the book of Hebrews, and for those that have, it's good for us to recap those things that God has revealed to us so far in this precious book. Matthew Henry put it this way concerning the pattern of Paul in the epistle to the Hebrews. He said that Paul, over and over and over again, does three things. He announces or proclaims the doctrine. He gives reasons or interpretation for that doctrine. And then he gives use or application for that doctrine. And that's what we saw in chapter 1. God spoke in times past to the fathers, by the prophets, but in these last days through his Son, Jesus Christ. It's the doctrine of God. It's the doctrine of Scripture. Then the doctrine of the Son is unpacked 
for those first four verses. And we saw those glorious traits of the Son, perhaps most glorious in the work that he did, even purging all our sins by himself. The rest of chapter 1 went on to show that he who has spoken in these last days is surely God himself, as is testified throughout the scriptures that the Son of God is God the Son. But what is the point of all that? How does that matter for our lives? And that's how chapter 2 opens up. There's something of a bridge between the first four verses of chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 2, where chapter 1 is brought to a conclusion, where it's applied. Maybe we could say it's driven home to us and to our lives for our benefit before the writer goes further concerning the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he will do in verse 5. But here in these opening four verses, as we saw last week, there is a command. Given all of these great things concerning God the Father, he has now given us a command concerning those things that he has told us about his Son. With that command came two warnings. The command was this in verse 1 of chapter 2. We must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. We must give earnest heed to those things. But with that command come two great warnings. The first one was in verse 1 at the end, lest we drift away. If we will not give the more earnest heed to God, we must be on guard, for we can drift away. The second warning is given in verse 3, which is in this one long question, verses 2 to 4, that the writer gives. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Here is the second warning. We shall not escape if we neglect so great a salvation as has been revealed in these last days through the Son. And that's where our attention comes to tonight, having considered that great commandment to give more earnest heed, most earnest heed to the things that we have heard concerning the the Son in chapter 1. We are now called to this second warning to be careful, because if we neglect the great salvation, we shall not escape. There is a great duty before us tonight, that we who have heard these great things that God has spoken, that we would not neglect them. There is a great account, one of, my, one of my favorite accounts in the book of Acts, but also a terrifying account in the book of Acts, where at the end of Acts, Paul, who is now a prisoner for the Lord Jesus, on his way to Rome, one of the places that he stops at on his way to Rome is before King Agrippa. And you might remember, I believe it's the 27th chapter, maybe it's the 26th of Acts, where Paul is before King Agrippa and his, and his wife and many, many who are in attendance And Paul gives an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he declares that he himself is an eyewitness of that resurrection. And he looks at King Agrippa and he says, do you believe this, King Agrippa? And King Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul grasps on that and says, oh, King Agrippa, I wish that you would, and everybody here would be like as I am concerning his faith in Jesus Christ, yet without the chains that I have. And from that time, King Agrippa and his wife and all that are there pass away from the biblical account of history. But there the great salvation of God was presented to the king and all in his court, and they were called to grasp hold of it by faith, God gives this great warning tonight how we must be careful lest we drift away from it and in so great a salvation being declared, we would neglect it like King Agrippa seemingly did. With that in mind, we have a question before us tonight, which will be our first point, and that is, what is salvation? And what are the unique temptations to us here tonight as we hear about so great a a salvation? Salvation. What a great word that comes to us in the scripture. How would you summarize salvation? Maybe you'd say it's really the whole of Christianity. It's the whole sum and substance of the gospel. You might say it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is our salvation. And all these things are very true. Salvation is to be saved from something. 
And salvation, as it's revealed in Scripture to us, is the great promise of God to all who would give most earnest heed tonight, to all, that they shall be saved and delivered from the wages of sin, which is death and hell itself, and brought to everlasting life and eternity in Jesus Christ. That's salvation, eternal life, redemption, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And there is salvation in no other way than through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. It's a great salvation, and we'll consider that in, a little, in another moment. This is what's in mind here. The whole of the gospel, the whole of the scripture, the whole of the testimony of Christ, summarized in this word, salvation. But when we hear this word, there are temptations that come to us. There are roadblocks on our way to considering the great salvation of the Lord. There are roadblocks to the unbeliever and the believer. And this is something that is, comes out in chapter 2 that will unfold in and throughout the book of Hebrews. That there are two groups that are being spoken to in this book, believers and unbelievers. But there are temptations and roadblocks that come to us as believers tonight as we consider the great salvation of God. One of those roadblocks is that we've heard it so often it grows dim. It's something great. I don't think there's anyone here tonight that would question the greatness of salvation in Jesus Christ. But do our hearts rejoice tonight as we hear of that great salvation, or are our hearts somewhat dim because we've heard of it so often? We can become so familiar with it that the joy of our first love, Jesus Christ, starts to grow lukewarm. And so the Lord calls us tonight to tune our minds once again to the greatness of the salvation that Christ has wrought for his people, that we might see him as he truly is again tonight and see the glory of his salvation. That's the temptation for us as Christians and all who call upon the name of the Lord, that it grows dim over time. Oh, may God revive our hearts and give us joy in the Lord afresh. But there's also a temptation for the unbeliever. The unbeliever looks at this great salvation that he's heard of, and he thinks it's too far off. It's too far away. Christ is God, and he's high up in heaven. He's too far away from me, and his salvation is too far off. We read about that in Romans 10, where the unbeliever says, is it up in heaven that I have to go up and bring it down, or is it in the depths of the sea that I have to go down and bring it up? Always thinking that this salvation is too far away, and yet... The answer of God there in Romans is, it's very near you. But there's another stumbling block for the unbeliever, and that is the simplicity of it. The unbeliever stumbles at the simplicity of the gospel, that there can be salvation from sin, and there can be life from the dead tonight through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's too simple. It's too easy. It doesn't involve my work. And as we'll see later on in chapter 2, this becomes a measure of of great concern for the apostle as he writes to us the word of God, this concern of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a third stumbling block for the unbeliever as they hear this great, of this great salvation, and that is that the present promise is more to be desired than that which is future. That the things and the pleasures of this life are counted worthy of, of more following than eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. That the wedding feast and the marriage supper of the Lamb that is surely coming is a small thing to be compared to the pleasures and riches that we can have in this world if we would just turn ourselves over to the devil, the world, and the flesh. That's the stumbling block. The great things of salvation are counted less valuable than the things of this world. And so the Lord would have us draw our attention to the greatness of salvation tonight. What is the greatness of salvation? And this is our second heading, the greatness of salvation. I want to look at this in five subcategories, but we could probably find 55 if we spent the time this evening and go on from there, because it's from the beginning to the end of the scripture, the greatness of salvation. But let us consider first, and each of these will be brief, but consider first the greatness of salvation in its gratuitous nature. That is, that salvation is of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He's found in the scripture alone. He's revealed all for his glory alone among his saints. It is a free gift. 
It is not of works, lest any man should boast, as Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us. The greatness of salvation is first in its gratuitous nature. Do you marvel at the kindness and mercy and benevolence of our God, who would charge us nothing, nothing, but give us everything that we might have salvation in and through his blood? That's the first thing about salvation that makes it great. It's gratuitous nature. It is all of grace, all of the gift of God. The second thing that makes salvation so great that we'll consider tonight is its free offer. Think about the offer of salvation that goes out from faithful churches and from faithful saints who are testifying of the truth of the salvation worked by God day to day. It's made to all. It goes and is not limited by anything. It's not limited by age. God is able to save in the womb. He can save when someone is on their deathbed. It's not limited by learning. In fact, it's the most wise that get the most warnings in the Scripture concerning salvation, lest they become wise and become confused concerning this great salvation. But it is for the wise and the unwise, the learned and the unlearned, the babes in education by the world standards, and those PhDs who have gone even beyond that. It's not limited. It's not limited to gender. And there's only two genders. But it's not limited to males. It's not limited to females, but goes out to both. All can come and all are, and all are called to come to the Lord Jesus. It's also not limited by righteousness. It's not as if that the more righteous can have this great salvation. Because as we know from Scripture, there is none righteous, no, not one. And anyone who thinks that on account of their righteousness they have been saved, they know not God, nor the greatness of his salvation, because of the first reason, it is all of grace. So therefore, it is not limited by what someone has, has, has or has not done. The one who has worshipped other gods alongside of the true and the living God, or apart from the true and the living God, it makes no difference, it's the same thing, idolatry. The one who worships God in the wrong way, who bows down to images, the one who has blasphemed the name of the holy God or broken his holy day, not remembering it to keep it holy, the one who has dishonored his parents, the murderer, the abortionist, the one who has murdered their own children, the one who has committed adultery, maybe in, in the flesh, maybe in their mind, in whatever way they've committed adultery, the one who has stolen, robbed God, robbed other people, committed grand theft, whatever the darkness and the sin is, the one who gossips, who's given over to the sin of breaking the ninth commandment, the one who is discontent. To all of these sinners, God's offer of salvation goes out, saying, come unto me, you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the greatness of salvation, that to the most sin-sick individual, the one that we might look at and say there's no hope for him, God's salvation says, call him, and God, by his grace, calls the sinner to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that a wretch like me might be found alive in Jesus Christ, so that a murderer like Saul, who killed Christians, might be alive in Jesus Christ and seen him beyond time in heaven who spoke to him on that road from the bright light that great day. This free offer is to all, to all. There is hope for all living. Oh, that the world would see that. So often, perhaps one of the most common responses to the gospel that I've seen in my life is this response that I'm too wicked for God to save. It is impossible. God is greater than our sins and iniquities. He is able to save to the uttermost, for he is all-powerful, and there's no one more powerful than him. What is the greatness of our salvation? Its gratuitous nature its free offer. Thirdly, the certain security of those that have this salvation. Whom the Lord saves, none can take away. There is a call, certainly, to those that have received this salvation to mortification of sin. We're called to progress in our sanctification, that we would die more and more to sin and live more and more unto righteousness. That even, even as we see in the scripture among the apostles, there was Peter, who in the early days of his life in Christ, he was even the one that would deny Christ three times. And yet he repented. Later on, he would remove himself from the Gentiles 
so that he would not be eating with Gentiles and thus denying the fullness of the gospel. And yet the Lord sanctified him. The apostles were not without sanctification. We must not think ourselves needing to, that, that we have come to a plateau in our Christian walk, but that we are still called to mortification of sin and to progress in our sanctification. Lest we drift away, we must keep these things in mind. But God has shown us the greatness of his, of his salvation in that those that have been saved can never be plucked away from his hand. All Christ's children will heed his voice and come unto him, though they may wander for a time. This is a point that will come to bear again as we conclude this message, but I want to draw our attention to it specifically tonight, the certainty of salvation, because in the book of Hebrews, as Peter said in his writing, there are things hard to be understood in the book of Hebrews. I don't know that we've been in things too hard to understand yet, But there are things that are harder to understand in this book, especially in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, where there there are great warning passages on those that would be presumptuous concerning the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must bear this in mind as we work through this book and as we apply it to ourselves that Christ is all-powerful when he saves, as we might say, is the hallmark of the book of Hebrews. When he saves, he saves to the uttermost. When he saves, he saves with absolute security and certainty in the one to whom he has saved. None can be snatched out of his hand because he and his father are more powerful than any other. That's one of the great things about salvation, the certainty of salvation for those that are recipients of it. Rome has no security. The Roman Catholic Church, no security. Hinduism has no security. That's why they teach a, uh, a reincarnation over and over and over again. No security for eternity. But in Christ Jesus, and in him alone, and in the Christian faith, there is security for the saved. It's a great salvation. We have an ark of deliverance in Christ Jesus. See that you do not neglect it. But there's another thing that makes it so great, and it's the fourth thing tonight— The greatness of salvation is seen in the way that it was accomplished. The holy, holy, holy God, the Lord God Almighty, came into this world of darkness and sin and depravity, and he put himself under the powers of men. He lived perfectly in submission to that good and holy and righteous law of God, and he died. He who was without sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He suffered the wrath of God. He bore the payment for my sins and all the sins tonight of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the sins that we would ever commit. He bore them on himself as he suffered on that cross. And as he was pierced, he was pierced not for himself, but for our transgressions. As he was bruised, he was bruised not for himself, but for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin he entirely bore on himself as the wrath of God was beating down on sinners because of their sin, there was a great gap in the wall to resist that wrath of God, and no man could stand in that gap. But Jesus Christ came into the world and stood in that gap, and he alone was able to bear the wrath and curse of God, and he alone did it, and it is finished. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. In his blood that was poured out, what a glorious accomplishment of salvation in Christ Jesus. That makes salvation so great. But there's another reason, and perhaps we can say the greatest reason of all, and it's the author of salvation. He is the one that makes salvation so great. It's interesting how this comes up, that salvation is talked about as being so great as if we would have heard something in Hebrews about salvation already. There was mention of salvation in verse 14 of chapter 1. The angels were called ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Verse 2 of chapter 2 picked up on that by talking about the word spoken through angels. And it was them ministering salvation, even in the Old Testament. Last week, you might remember that Stephen, as he was giving a testimony before the council, he spoke of the giving of the law through the ministration of angels in the Old Testament. 
but we haven't, on one level, heard more about salvation so far in this text. But we're told that it's so great a salvation, as if there's more that we should know about it. And there is more that we should know about it. What's been going on in Hebrews is we've been told about the author of our salvation, Jesus Christ. The whole of the first chapter was concerning him. And so we can say of salvation that Jesus Christ himself is salvation. He is our very salvation. He is the one we hope in. He is the one we believe in. Salvation is in Christ Jesus. So Simeon in the temple, he held baby Jesus and he said, Behold, I have seen the salvation of my God. Elisha and Isaiah in the Old Testament, they reminded the people of Israel who their salvation was, even in their own names. Isaiah had that name meaning God is salvation. And Elisha had that name, God is my salvation, making it very personal to the people of Israel and the people of Judah that they may never forget that salvation is not this idea. It's not this framework. It's not this concept. Salvation is a person. Jesus Christ himself is salvation. If you would, turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. There, once again, as is so often the case in Acts, the apostles are dragged before the courts of men. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10, this is after Peter and John were arrested, after they healed a lame man for that good work, they were arrested and for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were called before the Sanhedrin. And in verse 10, we see Peter speaking. And actually, I'll pick up in verse 8, because it's the start of Peter's comments. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all that to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders." which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is a man. Salvation is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who sits enthroned on high. That's what Hebrews 1 is concerned to tell us about. That's how Hebrews 1 is speaking of salvation from the very first verse, even until this verse that we come to in chapter 2, because it's been speaking of the Savior. The greatness of salvation is displayed in the greatness of the one who saves. And neglecting the great salvation, then, is to neglect the Savior, Jesus Christ. How could we possibly escape if we were to neglect Jesus Christ. Do you see that then in the text? How can we escape in verse 3 if we neglect so great a salvation? We could ask it this way. How could we escape if we neglect the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to us, who has died in the place of sinners? How will we possibly escape? The scripture calls us to see that we, we cannot escape if we neglect him. In fact, there's very harsh words or I need to be careful how I say that. There are strong words that are used. They are good words. They are the words of the Lord that are used concerning those that would neglect the Lord Jesus Christ and drift away from him or let his glorious salvation pass by. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, as Paul brings an end to that, great, uh, to that great account and to that great epistle right after the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. But as the book comes to an end, Paul says these words, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Accursed. This is the great neglect of salvation because it's the neglect of the Lord Jesus Christ and a curse is called upon them. If we neglect so great a salvation, if we neglect the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. This is the height of all folly to neglect the Lord Jesus Christ because the salvation that is in him is free it's all of grace alone through faith alone. It's freely offered. It saves to the uttermost those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes to us in the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. What folly to neglect the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the testimony that has been spoken concerning him, lest we drift away, lest 
we neglect the great things that God has done. But let us ask another question of this text, and this will be our third heading. How do we know that this salvation is so great? Who says it? By what authority? Is it the authority of Ben standing up here today that makes this salvation so great? How do we know? Well, God is very concerned to give a threefold testimony, even in the remainder of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Here's how we know that this testimony is so great. The Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke it. Look at the middle of verse 3. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke it. As he came and proclaimed his glorious gospel, he did so in this way. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. And he who dies and believes in me shall live forevermore. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He came preaching the glorious, great gospel of salvation. That's what he came to do, to preach the word. That's why the year of Jubilee was unleashed forevermore when Jesus Christ was preaching in Nazareth that day in the temple. Because salvation had come and was given by Christ. He is the first one who gives testimony to the greatness of salvation. But as Jesus says in John 5, if he is the only one that bears witness, then his witness is false. He says someone else needs to give witness to him. And Hebrews agrees because it's the word of the Lord God. And look at the end of verse 3. There's more than the Lord Jesus himself. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Here's the second testimony. It's confirmed by eye and ear witnesses. Peter saw him risen. 500 people saw Jesus risen at one time. James saw him. Paul saw him as a man out of season. Peter says in in 2 Peter 1, 16, that he is an eyewitness to the majesty of God. This is why we ought to give very earnest heed to the word that was spoken because Jesus started preaching it and it was confirmed by many witnesses. Peter, James, and John, they were there that day on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus was lifted up above the mount, as the voice from heaven came, even as Moses and Elijah stood side by side, Jesus, the voice said, this is my beloved son. That was not done in secret. It wasn't done in a cave. It wasn't done before one man. There were multiple eyewitnesses to the glory and the power of Jesus Christ and the greatness of his salvation. That's why the Father said, listen to him. Listen to him. He has the words of life. Who else will we listen to but to the one that has everlasting life for his people? Jesus began to speak of it. The apostles and the Christians at that time confirmed it and bore witness to it with their eyes and their ears, but there's more. There is a third witness to the greatness of salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. God himself bore witness. We already gave testimony to that. The voice of God was spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration, just like at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. We heard the voice of God there. But look how it brings us to examine these various ways that God bore witness. There were signs and wonders and miracles. I I think in Scripture I agree with some theologians who say these are virtually synonyms. If we want to parse them out a little bit, maybe it's helpful, but we wouldn't want to make too much of a difference among the three. But certainly we see signs of the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatness of his salvation because he cast out demons. He had power over the spiritual world. He did great wonders. Think about the wind and the waves that obeyed him. Even at his death, all the world was made darkness. What of the miracles? Oh, the Gospels are filled with the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they doing? Are they for us to look at and say, oh, well, because of the power of God there in Jesus' day, we should have miracles in our day? No, God is saying they bore witness to the greatness of the salvation of Jesus Christ. If you hear of miracles and signs and wonders in places that call themselves churches today to show you something amazing about that church, they've missed the whole point of miracles, signs, and wonders in the Scripture. 
Miracles, signs, and wonders were done by God through Jesus, through the apostles, for this reason, to bear witness that Jesus Christ himself is salvation, that salvation is great, and that salvation's to the uttermost. That's what these things are for. And he's poured out gifts of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you see it at Pentecost, the tongues, this great mysterious thing that people have talked about when we see it so clearly in in Acts chapter 2, where the tongues were this, people from every nation, language, and tribe, they went to these Jewish Hebrew uh, disciples and they heard them speak in their own language. God gave them the ability without studying, without examining any other languages, they were able to speak in the language of someone from a far off country. God gave them gifts. God poured out gifts in his church. Think about the gifts that are spoken of in Paul's epistles. All these things testifying to the glory and the greatness of the salvation worked by Jesus Christ. Do you think about that in the church as we're gathered here tonight? That all of the different parts of the body that God has raised up, some are called to be the feet, some the hands, some the eyes. Where would the feet be if there were no eyes? Why has God brought all these different gifts and traits and experiences together? For this reason, to bear witness to the glory and the greatness of salvation that has worked in Jesus Christ. Let us not neglect so great a salvation that at first was proclaimed by Jesus himself, that was confirmed and testified by apostles, by disciples, by Christians who had everything to lose and nothing to gain by lying, and who did lose everything, holding fast to Christ, and by him whom God himself bore witness to, a threefold testimony given to us. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as this? Now maybe as you're thinking of this, you have a question that I have as I was examining this. Who are the we here? This is a question that has caused many people to uh, have different opinions, and much debate has been about this. Who are the we How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's always good to ask questions of the Scripture, to come to an understanding of that which the Lord wants us to know concerning his word. It's not unbelief to ask questions. We ought not to question the word of God as in to doubt it, but to ask questions of the word of God is altogether appropriate. And we should ask this question, who are the we? And this brings us back maybe all the way, maybe it's been a year now, to when this book was introduced, and we examined who it was that Paul was speaking to the Word of God. Who was he writing to? And we said, first of all, from the passages in Hebrews that make this clear, it's to those Jewish believers who were scattered around the Roman Empire. But it wasn't only to Jewish believers scattered around the Roman Empire. It was also to all the brethren that were scattered around the Roman Empire in all the church. But it wasn't just the Jewish believers and all the brethren. It was also to the unbelievers. And Paul does something very interesting here as he speaks this word we. He goes even further. He includes himself. This is the first person plural. He's speaking in we. That includes him, the writer. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He, Paul, is including himself here as one who will not escape if he neglects so great a salvation. And if we understand this, there's great benefit in understanding the book of Hebrews, that as the the word of God is given, the word of God is given, yes, primarily to the church, but the word of God is not only given to the church. How many people would have heard before someone talking about an epistle and say, well, this this is a pastoral epistle, or this is an epistle written to the churches. It's not really written for the world. Maybe you've heard something like that before. And yet I would ask how many people have been saved who are in the world when they heard that great passage from Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Or it was Martin Luther who was reading the epistle to the Romans who read, the just shall live by faith. And there was that Roman Catholic monk on his way to perdition and God saved him there. Because God's word is not limited to believers. God's word goes out to the unbeliever. And they're called to obey it. And they're called to, that they must come to it. Paul is very urgent as he writes in the book of Hebrews that there is application in his warnings to the unbeliever and to the believer. And they're going to have the same warning, but the extent of it or the effect of it is going to be different depending on whether one is an unbeliever or a believer. Paul makes this clear by including himself 
in this morning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I said earlier that this helps us with the more difficult passages like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. If we understand the style of Paul's writing in this book, he includes himself. So there's a warning to the unbeliever. We'll consider that first. How shall the unbeliever escape if the unbeliever neglects so great a salvation? How can the unbeliever neglect it? Well, the unbeliever can deny that the salvation exists. He can ignore that it exists. He can reject it altogether, and he's under the curse of 1 Corinthians. How many of our friends and relatives, acquaintances and neighbors, we've pleaded with them the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, and they simply reject it. Here comes the warning, and it's appropriate to warn those who you give the gospel to that if they choose to neglect it, how will they escape so great a salvation? How will they escape if they neglect so great a salvation? In the Old Testament, they didn't escape. It came through, through, if we can put it this way, lesser means, because in these last days, it's come through the Son. In the days past, it came through the prophets to the fathers, and those prophets all died. And they didn't escape if they didn't listen to Moses back then. How will we escape if we neglect the great salvation that is offered to us today? When you're ministering the gospel to friends, bring it home to them here. You've heard of the glory and the freedom and the majesty of salvation in Christ Jesus. How will you escape if you neglect it? How will you be able to stand in that great day and say, Lord, I I missed it. I missed it. We won't be able to stand in that great day if the unbeliever neglects that great salvation. They can deny it, they can ignore it, they can reject it, and then here's what they have to look forward to, everlasting judgment. So this warning comes to the unbeliever who who has heard, who's come near. They haven't been far off, they've come near. They're examining the glory of Christ, they're examining his salvation, examining his word. They come near to him, but they neglect it. They reject that salvation, so the warning is to them, you will not escape God's righteous judgment if you neglect it. But it also comes here to the believer. There's a warning to the believer. The believer can neglect the great salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can a believer forget it, or how can a believer neglect it? Well, the believer, as we said at the beginning, the believer can neglect it by becoming so used to it, it grows dim. He doesn't live according to it anymore. He forgets it's there. He becomes forgetful in the way. Or he can pretend that it's not worth as much. That it's not worth as much as it once was. Oh, we hear and see of Christians as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they should be joyful. Everything that was, that was the way it was the day before, it's altogether new the next day that they're saved. What a joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our joy every single day. But as time goes on, as the pressures of the world come upon us, we can pretend that it's not worth very much, and we can become sleepy. We can become drowsy in our Christian faith. We can become weak. We can neglect the means of grace. We can hear the pleading of the pastor, of the elders, calling people to to come to the means of grace, to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can drift away from it and fall into great sin and make shipwreck of the faith that God has once delivered to his saints. Think about the examples in Scripture. Certainly, David's an easy example. Everybody has heard of David. And think about how he neglected the great salvation and how he went even to commit adultery and to murder and to lie and did all these things because he neglected the great salvation of the Lord. We could think of Peter once again as he denied the Lord Jesus and he went away in utter agony and sorrow of mind and of spirit because he neglected the great salvation of the Lord even with his mouth. The Lord is saying to the Christian, be warned, if you neglect the great salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the minimum, it's not going to go well with you. You're going to fall into great doubts, great unbeliefs, maybe, and maybe an often assurance of salvation is going to fall away. Maybe nobody even in the church is going to think that you're saved because of the way you've neglected the great salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and maybe you're not even going to think you're saved either. This is how horrific it is to fall away and to neglect the great salvation of the Lord. But the Lord has made a promise to his that he will call them back. How will he call them back? With this great warning. This great warning tonight. He warns the one who has heard and is saved and is drifting away. He warns them with his gracious call tonight. He says, come back. 
His hand is stretched out still. You're wandering, you're drifting away, you're letting it slip by. My hand is stretched out, take hold of it. Come, and he draws him back. It's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, early on in his Christian journey, after he went through that wicked gate, he was told that he could go off the narrow path and go to the way of Legalist's house, and he could get to the city of Zion faster, and up that mountain he went until he was frozen in fear because the mountain was overshadowing him and ready to fall on top of him. He had neglected the great salvation of God. He had forgotten his precious promises. He had denied them in his own mind, letting them slip away. And there he was, nearly at the point of destruction. And maybe if we were examining that, we might say, there's a man that was never saved. Oh, no. It was right at that moment that God sent the evangelist to him and said, Christian, what are you doing out here? Come back to the narrow way. Come back to the way that leads to Zion. This is the way to destruction. Here is a man who was saved but had neglected that great salvation. And God, in his goodness and mercy, will always draw his child back. Always bring him back, but don't fall into that way. What a horrific way it is for the one who in Christ neglects so great a salvation. So Christian, do not neglect it. Don't find out what torments of the soul await the one who, though saved by the blood of the Lamb, neglects so great a salvation for a time. It is a horrific place to be spiritually. So you see then, neither the unbeliever nor the believer will escape if they neglect so great a salvation but that, that judgment upon them, if you would be, is very much different. One leading to everlasting destruction, one leading to sorrow and turmoil for a season. Even as the psalmist would write about in his psalms, think about the Psalm 32. What happened as he hid iniquity in his heart? His bones become, became like dead. They were rotten in his flesh because he would not repent and confess his sins to the Lord. He neglected the great salvation of God. Do not bring that judgment upon yourself or that fatherly discipline, if we say it rightly, that the psalmist faced. But draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do not go through this way of neglect. How can we then keep from neglecting this great salvation? Well, for the unbeliever, and we'll draw this to conclusion here, for the unbeliever, they have a great commandment in front of them tonight. I pray that every one of you here tonight as a believer and on the way to that eternal city, even the celestial city of Pilgrim's Progress, or as we sung tonight, the city of Zion, where Jesus Christ is there. But if there is one who is not a believer tonight, God lays it out here. How must you not neglect the great salvation? Well, you must be born again. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, and that great salvation will be yours. It is a commandment. So often the gospel is sadly presented as a mere choice to be made. It is a command. A man must be born again if he will enter into the kingdom of God. You must give more earnest heed to the things that are spoken by God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a command. If we are not born again, we will surely perish. And so the Lord calls to the unbeliever, you must be born again. Here's how you keep from neglecting. Listen to God, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall live. But for the believer, God would call us to keep from neglecting by putting away sin. Put away friendship with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? That was true 2,000 years ago when James wrote it. It's true today. We cannot be friends with the world. They will cause us to neglect the great salvation of the Lord. I pray this isn't the reason that anyone is not in church tonight, but perhaps some are not in church tonight because the world has pulled them out of the church. Friends have called them to go do other things, and they've neglected the great means of grace that God has given to keep us in the narrow way all the way to glory because the world, the flesh, and the devil have pulled them away. We must put off sin and friendship with the world. But then, positively, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13 tells us to do both. Put off the old man, put off sin, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we must follow him. We must be his disciples. We must give more earnest heed to the things that he has spoken, lest we drift away. We must be lovers of his word. Reading it daily, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Talking of it when we sit down, when we lie down, when we rise up, when we walk in the way, when we sit together over a meal, we must read his word, memorize it, meditate on it. We must pray, read his word, 
pray his word. We pray, that sixth petition, deliver us from, deliver us from evil. Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do we pray that with meaning? Do we expect God to do it? Would Jesus tell us to pray in that way if he was not going to deliver us from evil and lead us far from temptation? God has told us to ask of him, and he will give us these things. We must teach the word to our children so that when they are old, they will not grow and depart from it. We must be examples of it among one another in the church, that others might see our good works and give glory to God the Father in heaven. All of these things are ways that we put on Christ, but maybe there's two categories. Above all, put on the whole armor of God. And all of that surround with prayer. And what of the fruits of the Spirit? Are the fruits of the Spirit within you? Those that are Christ have the fruits of the Spirit. It's not that they look for the fruits of the Spirit. If you've been born again, you have the fruits of the Spirit. Are you living according to the fruits of the Spirit? Put off sin. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the ways that God has called us so that we would not neglect the great salvation that he has given to us. Brothers and sisters, I hope that tonight, while we've gone long, I know that, I confess it, While we've gone long tonight, I hope that you've seen something of the greatness of the salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been testified by the Lord himself, by God himself, and many witnesses. And God calls us tonight not to neglect it, but to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll close with these words from the Psalms. How shall a young man direct his way? By giving heed according to your word. May we give heed to the word of God, and rejoice in God our Savior. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you so much for this, your holy word, that calls out to us who are prone to wander. Lord, we all feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And we ask tonight that through your word and spirit, you would take us in, keep us from backsliding, keep us from drifting, draw us nearer, nearer to yourself by these glorious means of grace that you've given, that not one of us might depart from them, that not one would neglect the great salvation. And, O Lord, if any of us are neglecting that great salvation, that you would call us to repentance, that you would call us to newness of of life and and a grief and hatred of sin and a a love and joy in, in the things that the Lord has spoken and in the Lord who has spoken. O Lord our God, please hear our petitions. We cry out to you. For you are the only one that gives help. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.